When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett-Bryan of Channel 4 News, and Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. You know the script. History beckons. A nation expects. You'll hear a lot about 55 years of hurt in the build-up to Sunday's European Championship final. Such theatrical nostalgia only cheapens the occasion. 1966 belongs to a different world. Another generation. This is about the now and the new. Gareth Southgate is the sort of leader this country lacks. Ruthless when required, but naturally compassionate. He's fashioned an England team, actually make that an England squad, of which to be proud. Italy will be favourites at Wembley on Sunday night. But Jordan, that tells us only a fraction of the story, doesn't it? It really does. And I'm not sure. I think it's a 50-50 game. I understand why people would have Italy as favourites. I think there's a lot of things going in England's favour as well in this game. I mean, first of all, I was there last night. I was there till one in the morning and it was just another level, guys. It was it was just it, it was tiring. It was raucous. It was beer infused. We got drowsed in in bit cheap beer at that as well. But it was amazing. It, there was no trouble the fans were just pouring out onto Wembley Way. You know, it took us an hour to get down Wembley Way into the tube station, but but it was all worth it. It, it was it was really really good. And I think that part of the story here is yes, England are in a final on Sunday, which is fully deserved. But I think what is really interesting, which I've taken away from this tournament, is Gareth Southgate. And I'll, I'll get to Sterling maybe a bit later in the pod, but start with Southgate. I think what Gareth Southgate has done is phenomenal because what Gareth Southgate has managed to do in, in what, four or five years is change the perception of the England team from one that was much of, a, of an embarrassment to the nation, one which people, I think, hoped might go to the quarterfinals, maybe a semi-final at best, beat a big team on the way, to one actually now where the expectation is that if we don't get to the latter parts of competitions, it's seen as a failure. And that, I think, is a good thing. I think Southgate has got has got the England team now having the country believe that they can now at the bare minimum get deep into competitions. And I think that is a phenomenal achievement. We're no longer laughing at England getting knocked out in the early parts. We're now expecting. I was there all day yesterday and the talk amongst the fans, guys, was, well, 
actually, no, no, this is the prelude to Sunday. We expect to get to the final rather than, oh, it might happen, great day, we'll see how it goes. And the other final thing I would say as well is that we're also at a point where if Sunday doesn't go to plan and worst case, England lose that final, there's no longer a thought of it's a once in a generational opportunity. If England were to lose on Sunday, you don't feel like they'll never get there again. Southgate's got the country believing that if they were to lose on Sunday, don't worry, a semi-final, we're a semi-final team now. We will get to the latter parts. And that for me has been one of the biggest takeaways. The perception of how people see the England team has massively changed. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, that's down probably to Dara Southgate's human touch you know, above everything else. Dom, you know, the nation, if not the squad, is at this sort of intersection between excitement, expectation, and let's be honest, a bit of entitlement. Will Gareth Southgate's biggest job be insulating his players from the hysteria that you know Jordan was talking about there and will obviously build until Sunday night? Well, certainly one of his jobs, definitely. I mean, I do think they we, sh- we shouldn't underestimate just how cocooned they are in St George's Park. I mean, that is in the middle of nowhere. It's not as if they're you know, in the middle of a city centre that's going wild every night in anticipation of of Sunday, that, that they can escape. They, they're in their own little world there and that, that will help them. But they'll also want to be a part of it a bit because I think I think in, in, in Russia in 2018, Fabian Delft went back for the birth of one of his, his children during the, during the tournament. He was the only member of that squad that experienced the hysteria the gleeful hysteria that was was erupting in in England. I mean, I didn't I didn't experience it because I was in Rapinia with with England as well. But but he sort of came back and told them all the nation is has gone mad here. They they they're unbelievably behind you. They're 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 thrilled at your progress. And I think a few that opened their eyes to a few of those guys, a few of the younger guys in particular, of the impact, the progression, and the success of the England team can have. So they'll want to they'll want to experience a bit of that. They'll, they'll want to be a part of it. They'll, they'll want, certainly when they come and stay, in, I don't know whether it's the Grove or, or whether they go back to Maida Vale on, on, on Saturday night, they'll, they'll want to feel as if this is an event that they're taking part in and they're participating in because that will add to the, that will get their juices flowing, that will add to the anticipation, that will, that will focus their minds, I think. I don't worry about this team mentally. I think they passed a massive, massive test on that front last night in that they concede a goal, their first goal of the tournament, they go behind. And and all that preparation that, that Southgate had put in, and, and bear in mind that he he's exceptional in this, in this point. Managers don't normally do this. I mean, a, a mutual friend of ours, Mike, Drew Broughton, who's, who now classes mm. himself as a fear coach, was talking to me about this. I mean, the, the idea that you sort of exercise your, your worst fear, fears together as a group before they happen in anticipation of how you will react when... There is a setback and Southgate had asked his squad, how are we going to react if we fall behind in a game? He'd asked them pre-tournament. He asked them way back in his tenure as well. And there was this look of horror on their faces when that was first, that subject was first breached. But, but actually it's, it's worked. They, they've, they sort of explained it to, to each other, how they would react, how they would stay calm, how they would focus again. And, and, and last night was a case in point. It took them eight minutes to create that first amazing chance and Kasper Schmeichel save from Raheem Sterling after after conceding the opening goal. And, and within 60 seconds of that, they were level through the own goal. And that that re- and then dominated for what remained of that first half and for large periods in the second half and extra time as well. 
And that just shows the strength of character, the strength of the fortitude of this team mentally. And I think that that stands them in hugely good stead for Sunday. And just to build on Dom's point there, I think we as the media have really overinflated this narrative of the pressure of the past on this team. It's just, it's been said by some as well. Some of these guys weren't even born for the in some of these you know these, these traumas. I think that's massively helped this England team. That the fact that they are, they're not weighed down by ninety six, ninety, and all these all these previous failures because they weren't here. And I think that that we're seeing an England team now that. I like what are you guys talking about? We don't we don't quite understand why you guys are so tense and nervous. We're a good team. We've got a chance. I don't understand. I think that's massively helped the fact that it's a new generation of players that are not tainted by traumas of the past in the way that the Lampard, Gerrard, Beckham, previous teams definitely have been. Yeah, I think that is an absolutely fundamental point. You know, because you know, it's interesting. You know. Tabloid front pages, especially, seem to be still in that, you know, swinging sixties era in terms of their attitudes and everything else. Sixty six is a great milestone, but it's not relevant. And as I said in the intro, Dom, this is about the now and the new. And this team, let's face it, are probably ahead of schedule, aren't they? Well, that clock in St George's Park that's ticking down towards Qatar twenty twenty two would suggest they're slightly ahead of schedule. I don't think we should. I mean, we can talk about '66, obviously, and how yeah, that, that means nothing to them. '96 means nothing to these guys. I think 2010, 2014, 2016 do mean things to these guys. They remember yeah. how disappointed the nation was at those exits. I, Iceland was the reference point. Iceland, there, wasn't it, oh, I mean, uh, Iceland and Nice was horrific, and you still you can still hear that thunderclap, the Icelandic thunderclap post match, and it sends it makes. It makes you shudder. I mean, what a horrific night that was. At least that was a specific a specific evening, a specific event. I mean, 2014 was just an entire non-event for the England football team in Brazil. They were, I mean, they went out within a week of the tournament starting. So those memories will be fresh, even amongst the youngest members of this team, with the possible exception of Jude Bellingham. But, <laughs> but so they are, they are sort of bouncing back from that, but... But yeah, they're creating their own history. They're they're writing their own stories, and and I think when Raheem Sterling or Harry Kane sits this group down, and he will have done, and 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 speaks to them about Iceland in twenty sixteen, or or Jordan Henderson talks to them about what happened in twenty fourteen, I think a few of them will just wonder, will wonder themselves at the transformation of the of the fortunes of the national side, and. So much of that, so much of that can be pinned on on Gareth Southgate and everything he's done. Mm. Let's look, Jordan, if we could, at the at the nature of that squad. There are no appreciable egos. They're not consumed, it seems, by you know this superstar culture. You know, we've been around Dom, especially, haven't we? When we we've been around England players, which are basically a disparate collection of alpha males. What we've got now, I thought, was summed up, and it was a, a line that Miggs Delaney came out with today where he talked about Southgate after the game trying to explain his decision to take Grealish off to, to Grealish himself. And the response he got was, and I, and I quote, Gaffer, I'm not bothered. We were in the final. Now, when you get a professional athlete talking like that, it means that you know there's, a, there's been a whole culture shift, hasn't there? 
100%. And you, you use that word there, egos. There, there are no egos here. Everybody's bought into what Southgate is trying to do. There's no circus. There's no scandal. There's no, there's no star. Who, who is the, I mean, Sterling will probably stand out as the, as the, the, the tournament's best performer, I think, if he has a good final and definitely for England. But even by previous England team standards, Sterling isn't a star. He's not a Beckham. He's not a Rooney. You know, he's he's not a he's not a, a Lineker or a Gascoigne. He's just the best player, one of the best players in the team. And I think that has definitely contributed to focusing the England team on what they need to do. We want to win a major tournament. We have the talent to do it. We have home advantage. We have the fan advantage. Everything is going in our favour. Let's not get involved in any of the nonsense on the outside. Let's for just for, for one month focus on doing the best that we can do and I think dropping egos and and someone like Grealish saying what he said there I think is telling he doesn't care and I think there's also this uh, this idea that people I was come I came around to it pre-tournament but it's the idea a lot of England fans have come around to now they don't care how we play we don't care if we play well we don't care if it's exciting just win the game and I think every single player is now buying into that philosophy as long as we win the game that is the most important thing. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about who gets the headlines. It's about us winning the next game. And the next game is a big one. And I don't think to broaden it just for a second beyond football, we should underestimate if England were to win on Sunday, how big that is. That for me is bigger than Mo Farah winning big double Olympic gold at, at, the, at the Olympics. Murray winning Wimbledon. Hamilton seven times F1 champion. England winning the Rugby and Cricket World Cup. This would be the greatest British sporting moment since 1966. And I think that when you look at the players, you don't get a sense that they are bothered by that extra pressure. But I think it's important to note that this is not just another another interesting and progressive sporting moment in this country's history. I think it would be the biggest since 1966. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, strength to that argument, Jordan. And also, you know, I hope that actually the media are a bit more mature about it as well. You know, I think you know, we have a almost uh, not a duty because that inflates the, the role of the media. But there, there is, you know, we don't need the, you know, what we need is, is actually the real stories to be told now in that sense you know and, and you looked at the jordan there you talked about the wider context you know dom let's let's look at raheem sterling if we could he has been almost a force of his personality has emerged during the tournament but what about his backstory what does that tell us about you know the nature of some of these players where they came from why they cherish the ambitions and the chances that they've got you know here's someone who was taken to training by his sister on three buses when his mum, a single mum who brought up four kids, cleaned offices. Now, if that isn't a morality play for our times, I don't know what is. Yeah, his backstory is is, is remarkable. But I think a lot of those guys have got very humble backstories as well. A lot of them, are, we've mentioned before, have... have are grounded in the in the football league. They're grounded in at lower league clubs. They're, I mean, there was a brilliant the reality that that both both goalkeepers in last night's game, Casper Schmeichel and Jordan Pickford, made their professional debuts at Darlington in, in yeah. the non-league. I mean, it's. I think that's that's prevalent throughout the, the England squad, and 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 definitely, definitely plays a part in, 
in the, the way that they react, the way that they perceive themselves, but but also the way they are perceived from the outside. And it's it's formed them all. And maybe that was a maybe you, you could argue that going back to golden generations, etc., and even before that, there were, there were a lot of occasions where where those players weren't from. They, they they were quite privileged in terms of in terms of how they'd been brought up and 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 the systems and the clubs that they played for. These guys have. I've almost seen football at the coalface throughout their junior careers. It may not be the case in the future either. I mean, EPPP and academies, etc. We may get a different kind of footballer, a more polished kind of footballer, a sort of youth system generated footballer that, that has, has grown up in pristine Premier League elite academies in, in, in future years. But but from this lot, when you, when you look down that squad from... You know, look at Tyrone Mings's background. I mean, look, look, they've all got these stories. They've all got them. Jordan Henderson as well. I mean, it's just, I think it's it's brilliant and it definitely makes them more rounded characters and, and probably plays a part in how they are coping and how they're being received through this successful time. I, I'm so enthralled by Raheem Sterling and I totally agree with Dom that I think half the squad at least have really interesting backstories. But I'm going to Wembley today to meet some of his friends to do a piece on his background. And my job today is to try and find a new angle <laughs> on, on it because it's been it's been it's been told so many times. Welcome to I've the got club, to try mate. and find Yeah, I've got to try and find a different way of telling that story. But the reason why I'm fascinated by Raheem Sterling is because I've heard of the praise for his performances and rightfully so during this tournament. And I've heard like, oh, he is world-class after all. I mean, without getting into the whole world-class debate, because it's a, it's a rabbit hole. I don't personally think he's world-class, but I think what he's shown in this tournament is in the moments that matter, he will step up. I don't think he's been, the first two games where he scored the first two goals, I didn't think he was brilliant in those two games. I thought he was good. I didn't think he was brilliant, but he scored the goals that mattered. Yesterday, I thought he was brilliant. I thought he was beating players. His fitness levels in extra time were absolutely off the scale. I have no idea how he found the energy to, to, to run as he did. But I think what's fascinating about him, he did an interview with Gabriel Clark, a phenomenal interview for ITV, which I thought was so good talking about the fact, the perception of him through the media. And, you know, he said something really pertinent about what's changed for him is that he cares less about what people think about him. He's learned to care less about what we have to say about him. And that has enabled him to be the player he's being at this tournament. He's not had a great season, but when you compare him to other players in his position in the Premier League, He's not had an awful season, but the standards he's, he's set are so high when he drops below them just a little bit, we perceive it as a poor season. I think that the perception of Raheem Sterling off the field needs to change. But what's important for me is that he's saying he doesn't care either way. I'm going to be who I am. I know who I am. I'm comfortable in who I am. And that is enabling me to become a better footballer for the nation. Now go and write your blogs. Not bad, not bad. I tell you what, the thing that strikes me, and we, look, we've got to be up front here and we've got to grasp a nettle, quite a, you know, a bad, stinging nettle. Uh-oh, here we go. Yeah. By common <laughs> consent, Sterling won that penalty last night. Does that mean that England can't occupy the moral high ground if, or more probably when, the Italians indulge their talent for subdiffusion cynicism what do you think Dom I'm sorry it's a hospital pass 
I thought there was contact. I thought that the, that the actual contra- controversy around that penalty was that Sterling rang past another ball that was on the pitch in the build-up. But he wasn't... I mean, that ball was, was close to him. It was within five yards. It must have been in the eye line of the defenders that were tracking him. And I was amazed that the Danish substitutes' appeals to the assistant linesman were, were waved away. When there's a ball, there's a ball on the pitch. I mean, look, it, I don't know who threw it on there, but th- that to me w- was astonishing. The, the pace that Sterling was was running into that penalty area, and I, and I don't think I don't think the foul was given against Mailer either. I think it was given against Jensen for coming across. And there is contact between Jensen's first with his arm and then then his thigh to to Sterling's thigh. So he, he goes down. England could argue that. Harry Kane should have had a penalty earlier in the half when when Nordgaard, the Brentford defender, was clattered him. They could also argue that the free kick that, that Denmark actually scored their goal from was was soft. But quite frankly, <laughs> I could not care less. It was given, and and we all know the rules. If if the on field referee gives that rule, then it's got to be a blatant 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 error that the VAR can pick up on it and and it wasn't it was it wasn't clear and obvious so the the penalty was given yeah we, we all know what to expect on on Sunday but then it, it would be hypocritical of me to suggest that that England I mean I, I remember so many tournaments going over the years from South Africa in 2010 onwards there would always be a one sit down session with Wayne Rooney at all these tournaments he, he would he would be wheeled out to the, the daily newspapers and we'd sit there with him and inevitably, second or third question would fly in there. Do England need to be more streetwise? Do England need to be more cynical? <laughs> Do England need to start winning penalties and winning free kicks and taking timeout game, managing games? And Wayne Rooney would always buy into it and say, yeah, of course we do. We're not streetwise enough. Well, we are streetwise now. So <laughs> live with it. Okay, so first of all, it's 100% not a penalty. I'm going to disagree with Dom for the first time here. There's no way it's a penalty. There's contact. There's contact for sure. It's not a foul. But where I do agree with Dom, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less because those are the breaks you get. I've always been a big believer. One of my favourite phrases or sayings in life is, and I, I, I genuinely believe it, the hardest working people in life are the luckiest people in life. I think if you look at teams, individuals who get the breaks, it's because they've generally done the work. England are one of the two best teams at these Euros and they're in the final. There was, as also Dom says, Kane should have had a penalty earlier in the game. So they got the breaks. Lampard, 2010 in Germany, as you mentioned. Maradona, come on. I have no problem normally piling in on England because they're normally awful and they deserve to lose and it's been an embarrassment for many years. But I'm going to stick up for England here because England, I don't think, have been very good at the dark arts. And a colleague of mine at Talk Sport, Jason Cundy, has been saying for years, and I agree with him, he has no problem with players cheating. If you get caught, deal with the consequences. If you can get away with it, get away with it. The Italians, the Spanish, the Uruguayans, the Argentinians, the Brazilians, they all do it. They all do it. If you get caught, book them. If you get away with it, it's your penalty. So I don't have a problem with it at all. I thought Sterling earned the penalty over the course of the game and the tournament and England got the break. And over the course of the game, I thought England were the better team. So for me, it's not a penalty. It is not a penalty, but I couldn't I, I couldn't give a damn. Yeah, well, let's... Harry, right, you know, England deserved to win. I think it was interesting the manner of which they closed out that win, Dom, 
right? That sense of self-control, you know, they kept possession. I saw a stat this morning. They completed 52 passes mm. without Denmark touching the ball in the last two minutes and 41 seconds of the game. Now, that's brilliant composure under pressure, isn't it? And it's something that we don't associate with England teams. No, we should start to associate it with England teams. There was a sense of control about last night. It was, my mind went back to the Luzhniki in 2018. And it was that game in reverse in many ways. An early, well, not an early free kick for Denmark, but a, a free kick to open the scoring. It was England back in 2018. It was Denmark last night. and and But then that that dominance eroded steadily, gradually, inexorably by by Croatia back then, a, a Croatia team brilliantly orchestrated by Luka Modric. England didn't have a Modric, they had, but they had control and they imposed themselves. And the, the way that they recovered from going a goal down, as we said in the first section, was outstanding. And the control they had throughout the second half, it, I mean, Denmark were tiring. Denmark looked exhausted. The last 10 minutes of the game, they were wheezing. They were wilting. They were done. Yeah, they, they were, were absolutely gassed. And it was England who were going to, who were going to score the next goal. I thought, I mean, fair play to Denmark for the way that they attempted to rally in the second period of extra time. That there was a period where they were, they sort of heaved themselves back into the contest, and they, and they, 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 they did try and unsettle England. But, but the way that England closed it out for the last five minutes was outstanding and really just indicative of the dominance that they'd had for long periods of that game. They're comfortable in possession. They are calm. Southgate is a calm manager now. I don't think he always was. I don't think he was in 2018. He, I mean, he some of his decisions at, at the Luzhniki were were naive, but he's learned lessons from that. This group have learned lessons from that, and that's also a sign of a good team, developing team. And they were the dominant force. And I, I, you know, the, my timeline was littered last night and this morning with with people saying that that. England is still saying that England are dull and England are boring and that Southgate is, is they're doing this in spite of Southgate. I don't know where these people are coming from other than they're aggrieved and they're not English because because that this throughout this tournament, with the possible exception of periods of the Scotland game, England have been in control. Can I just add to that very briefly? I, I, I maybe it says a lot about me and how boring I am as a person, <laughs> but I found that that closing out period, as you put it, Mike, the most fascinating and most pertinent part of England's Euros, because it said to me that, as Dom says, they've learned how to see out a game. They recognise that Denmark were done. They couldn't press. They couldn't even get to England to foul them. That's how knackered they were. And England just thought, we haven't got a score. They, that sequence of passing was just so good. They were calm. Apart from a 15-minute period in the Denmark game last night, I can't think of a time where I've been tense or nervous or felt England were not in control of the game. And that just composure to see the game out and not, I was screaming, get the third, kill the game, kill the game. But they didn't even need the third. The, the substituting of Jack, Jack Grealish, I thought was an error. Well, it wasn't because they won the game, but I, I thought that that was an error because that's the one person who A, can keep the ball and win you fouls. So I found that one slightly bizarre taking off Jack Grealish. But I think the word that Dom uses control, that the team had the control. And I think that that was something that I was really like, 
it really gave me a buzz to just see that this England team, there's not going to be any last minute, oh, they're going to equalise. It was England have got this. Denmark recognised. And I thought it was telling as well that Schmeichel didn't even come up. I think they had a corner quite late on. He didn't even come up because I think even he realised psychologically, this is over. We're, we're, we're done. This is, and I think that is a testament to England. And again, so super briefly on Southgate, because I think Don made another good point about people who are still hating on Gareth Southgate. I think those people, Dom, are never going to change their minds on Southgate. No. And I think there's a perception of Southgate that the, the way he looks, the way he walks and carries himself, the things he talks about, I think there's a group of English fans that feel like he's not one of us. He doesn't feel English like us. He doesn't feel it like we do. And no matter what he does, even if he wins on Sunday, there'll always be a group of people that will find something to beat him over the stick with. Because I think it's not about football. I think there's some people that don't like him. He's not a Venables, he's not a Keegan, he's not even a Hoddle. I think there's something about him that I think a group of English fans feel, nah, we're not having him. So no matter what he does, those group of English fans are never going to really warm to him. I, I agree with you on that. And, I, and I'm not saying that those some of those criticisms were... You know, they were probably delivered by by fans who weren't weren't English as well, and they probably look at him as a bit slightly geeky. And I think he probably admits he's probably quite slightly yeah. geeky as well, and he doesn't care at all. I, I'm going to disagree with you, Jordan, for the first time. I thought the substitution. Let's of, have it. Go on, go on. The substitution of Jack Grealish was was brilliant, and, and and a sign of how far Southgate has come along. There is no way in 2018 that he would have substituted the substitute. There is no way in 2018 he would have changed the team's shape to preserve a lead. There's absolutely no chance. And and the, the the fact that he he saw that as an opportunity to bring on Trippier and to go three at the back and to and to match up basically against a t- an opponent that was knackered and the only way the only way I think that Denmark were ever going to get back into that game was to exploit space that uh, you know playing against a different system fair, might have fair. opened up by matching up that space was closed down and fair, and the fair, Danes yeah. were beaten. Does that also, Dom, though, point or highlight the very quiet influence of Steve Holland on this squad? It's very interesting. You know, he's very quick to approach Gareth at key moments. My gut feel was that was a a decision made by or suggested at least by Steve Holland. You saw him at Chelsea quite a lot. Give us an idea, an insight into him. Well, he's not quiet for a start. I think in this relationship, he's the bad cop. I think if you ask those England players privately about training at St George's Park and in, in this tournament, he's the one that's that's whipping them into shape on the training ground. Admittedly, with plans that are drawn up and discussed with with Southgate, but but Southgate's the man manager, and and Holland is the well, he's he's driving them, and he's he's the one who's setting the standards, and he's the one that's calling them out, even the senior players, if those standards ever slip even slightly. So. I don't think he's a silent partner in in any any respects. I think he's probably the most vocal voice on that training ground. But I agree with you on I, I suspect that yeah that that he will definitely have had a say in that. But it would have been a plan. This would have been meticulously planned, like everything is with this England team. If we go two one up in extra time, we will change the system. We will do this. I mean, the only person who probably was surprised. Was was Jack Grealish? I imagine at why well, I suppose and everybody else in the stadium who wasn't involved with the England <laughs> side. But but I, I just I thought that was brilliant improvisation from the outside looking in. But actually, probably really meticulously thought out. This is the way we close this game down. And just going back going back to twenty eighteen, there is no way that, that would happen. You know what? It wouldn't have happened in twenty nineteen at the Nations Cup either Nations League when England 
were made to look naive by quite a young Dutch team. It's they're shrewd, they're canny, and they're streetwise. In the same way that you know that we're talking about Sterling and the, and the penalty, England know how to manage games now, and they're doing that from the bench and out on the pitch. When you think about it, one of the things that strike well strike me about this squad is the you know is the range of options that Southgate has in terms of his selection, and we've also almost got that. It's almost like a baseball thing where you you know you have certain players for certain situations. What we've got probably, you know, Sterling and Kane up front are they're set in stone. On that left side, Jordan, who would you play on Sunday? Bakayo Saka, we've got Foden, we've got Grealish, we've got Sancho, you know, unbelievable riches. Where would you go? Where would you jump? It's a good question. I hmm. So looking at the Italian team and how I think they might set up, I think it's a question of do we penetrate them with guile or pace or directness? Because I think you get the guile from Foden. I think you get the the pace from Saka, but you get the directness, I think, from, 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 from Sancho. I would probably lean towards sticking with Saka. I think he's doing a really good job of occupying that particular fullback or that the, the defender who was in that pocket for, for an hour. He's fading after an hour quite badly, but that's fine. He's young and, you know, he'll, 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 he'll get there. But I think for an hour, he's really working that pocket of that team's defence. So I would lean more towards Saka. I think Foden has had moments and I think that he... I think his time will come. I think I think this might be a tournament too early for him in terms of the expectations that a lot of people put on him. But I think Saka's the one. And Sancho, I, again, I thought his performance against Ukraine by people was slightly inflated. I thought he was good. I thought Sancho was good. I didn't think he was as good as everyone made it made out to be. And I'm a Sancho fan. You know, he's from. He literally grew up about 30 seconds from where I am now in Kennington. So, you know, we all, we all love Sancho around here. Um, <laughs> but but I didn't think he was as good as made out. But I, I think Saka of the three options, I, I, I think is probably best option to hurting the Italians. I, I think he'll occupy them and he'll keep them busy. He'll keep them thinking. He'll keep them working with his constant industry. So, yeah, I would, I'd lean towards, towards Saka. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how England get on with the challenge, probably the ultimate challenge of dealing with that Italian defence. Basically, if you want to, if you want a symbol of that defence and the Italian defensive culture, you see it in Giorgio Cellini. You know, there's a wonderful. I don't think a player has ever been captured so well as when Maratta talked about playing against him being like trying to take a banana off a gorilla in a cage. <laughs> that is such a fantastic image. Um, he's got that sheer, sheer joy of involvement. You know, we saw it in the in the bit of the mind games before the penalty shootout. How are they going to deal with him? They're going to run at him. They're going to run at him. They're going to run at him. They're going to hope that that hamstring that pinged earlier in the tournament will ping again. They're going to stretch him. Look, they won't be under any illusions this this Italian team has been behind for 10 minutes in their last 24 matches I mean it's it's an astonishing astonishing defensive record but I think England's raw pace will give that that Italian side a, a, 
a problem they haven't really faced that often in this tournament. Uh, England have the ability to pour at teams if they want to. I think it's great that Saka tires after 60 minutes, by the way, because then that gives you a chance to bring on a Grealish or a Foden or a Sancho. And I mean, and Sterling will keep running. Sterling will keep running throughout. I think it's, I think it's, it's almost, it almost makes the manager's mind up for him that he needs to make that change at around the hour mark. I thought Saka was superb again last night. Just the way that he battles to, 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 to free himself from a marker and, and retain possession and still then find that burst of pace to get away. I thought he was excellent off the flank. And I, th- I think if you get those guys running at that, that veteran Italian defence, there will be opportunities. Look, Italy are great. Italy are great. They've been fantastic throughout the tournament. They, they will be streetwise. They will be canny. They will cause England problems up, up front. Their midfield is superb. Verratti is such a good player. Such a good player. E. Locatelli's not even in their starting lineup now, having started the, the tournament on fire. They've got a lot going for them. But England have probably got the deepest squad in this in this tournament. All fit, all firing, all raring to go. Each of them offering a slightly different threat. And combined, I wouldn't want to face this England team on Sunday. I think a couple of things on Chiellini, first of all, I think this is a really big game for Harry Kane. Now, Harry Kane has won a, a golden boost at a World Cup. He's won, I think, four out of five golden boots in the Premier League. It's insane record. He's, 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 he's met up with and competed with centre-backs as good and better than Chiellini. So I don't want to praise this as he's, you know, this is the biggest defender he'll play against. But I think that, and I don't know how much this will play a role in his club decision career, if he can find a way to overcome Chiellini and really aim in another golden boot here and lead England to win this game I, I, and, and win his first major major trophy, I think that'd be significant because he's coming into this tournament now. It took him a while to wake up and there were doubts about whether he really was world-class. I was hearing from some people because golden boots is one thing, but in the moments that really matter, Kane doesn't really get, get any team, be it Tottenham or England, over the line. This, I think, is his moment. I think he has to really find a way to draw out Chiellini in the way that he's been playing to enable the pacey players, as Don mentions, to really hurt the Italian defence. Spinazzola, I think, is a massive loss for the Italians. That's a huge... I think he's the best left-back of the tournament, even better than Luke Shaw. I think it's been brilliant. And for full disclosure, I tipped Italy to win the Euros before the Euros started, so it's a win-win for me, really, on Sunday. <laughs> Either way. But but I think Italy have been brilliant. I think they have got a really good team. But I think, to Dom's point, I'm not sure they've got a great squad. So I think as long as England can deal with the occasion, get to the hour mark and still be within the game, if not ahead... I, I think I'm I'm tipping England to slightly nudge this one. Yeah, I suppose that one thing looking at Italy, it, they do have a feel of a bit of a club team. And, you know, we, we rightly hailed the culture that Southgate has ingrained, you know, within the England group. But let's, Dom, if we could, look at what Roberto Mancini has done with the Italians. There seems to me to be a perfect symmetry between the generations here. You've got Mancini and Viali passing on all the old values to the current generation. You know, as fans, I think there's something special about seeing someone like Mancini, who we, you know, recognise as a player, emerging as a coach of real stature. He, in his own way, has been as impressive as Southgate, hasn't he? Yeah, you have two 
it needs it requires a context it requires their failure to get to to the Russian World Cup i mean that that was that sent such shockwaves through italian football for them to suddenly gone 33 games unbeaten not having lost a game since september 2018 i think that is testament in itself to to the job that that mancini has has done with Viali, with Lombardo involved as well, that Sampdoria link from back in the day. It's magnificent, everything they've achieved. And and we we look at the Italian team now, and on the one hand, there's the, they look like the Italian teams that we remember from years back. You know, they they have that 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 stinginess, that that uh, that yeah, the the streetwiseness again. We keep going back to that, but they also have an added dimension that they're, they're more expansive going forward. They're not cagey. They they you know they they can run riot they through the group stage they were the, probably the most thrilling attacking team to, to watch albeit they were dismissing teams of of lesser quality themselves but they've they've got everything they're very well rounded as a, as a side they've got very very promising young players they've got they've got the older guys at the back a bit like a bit like England in that respect there's a balance there and they've also got the the likes of Jorginho playing and Verratti playing out of their skin in, in, in midfield and those guys are maybe you know, in their, their mid-twenties, they are the sort of experienced elder heads, but they're not veteran status yet. They've still got years ahead of them. So there is a, the perfect blend within the Azuri squad. And I mean, don't, let's not underestimate Mancini. We know we knew Mancini was a great coach. I mean, he did he, he performed miracles at Manchester City. I mean, he was the one who set the tone at, at, at City to as a title-winning team. So that shouldn't come as a great surprise, but... But, but the galvanising effect that he's had on Italian football in raising his compatriots and bring, restoring pride and taking them on to the next level, I think it's quite something. I think a couple of brief things. Sassuolo, I think I saw a stat, I should have double-checked this, that they are providing the most amount of players at this Euros than any other club. I have to double-check that. But it's definitely, I think, a handful, if if not more, players. And for a club so small that I believe is in a part of Italy that was really ravished with COVID cases when Italy was on fire with, with, with COVID a year ago, I think it's a testament to how the Italian national team has tapped into the work that Sassuolo are, are, are doing. And secondly, I think we're in for an exciting and arguably the best World Cup ever in 18 months time. When I look at the Italian team and think where they'll be in 18 months, the English team in 18 months, the Spanish team, the Dutch team, the Portuguese team, the French team. There's going to be some really good teams with really good players in and around their peak years at the next major competition. So I look at the Italian team and think, and English team, even whoever loses on Sunday, they'll be thinking, one of you mentioned ahead of schedule, they'll be thinking, okay, we lost this final, but we're really going to put ourselves as contenders for the big one in 18 months' time. And I think both teams, both sides are... are, are have the squad, the manager, and the age group, I believe, to really peak in 18 months' time at, at, in Qatar. Yeah, um, yeah I, I do see similarities between the teams on Sunday, even down to their backstories. You know, Dom, you know, with your Chelsea hat on, Jorginho, like Raheem Sterling, he's a story for our times, isn't he? You know, left Brazil to go to Italy at 15, he's exploited by an agent who left him to live on 20 euros a week. He wanted to quit. His mum talked him out of it. He fought his way up from Serie C. And as you said, you know, that midfield with Verratti and Barella is something else. A story of our time, which also involves a haunted monastery. 
which is a slightly odd story of our time. But yeah, he he lived in apparently when he arrived in in Italy, that was where he, he had to stay initially as a as a as a kid in the youth system of whichever club that he he, he joined over there. It was in Napoli, wasn't it? Is it Napoli? It was okay. Napoli. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's yeah, it's it's great. I, I like his story because he obviously established his reputation at Napoli under Maurizio Sarri, followed Sarri to England almost as part of that deal. He, he Sarri was the add-on. <laughs> um, and then, and then it, 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 I think a lot of people, a lot of Chelsea supporters doubted him and there have been long periods where people have wondered why Jorginho is selected by Sarri in a struggling, well, it's not a struggling team, but a, but a team that was unconvincing by Lampard and subsequently, and to a certain extent by Tuchel. But actually, Jorginho has proved himself. He he is he's integral, and I think what we don't see with him so much on the pitch, but we probably are starting to recognise now, is his influence. This is one of the more vocal members of the Chelsea squad, in a language that isn't even his own. He is the life and soul to a certain extent of that of that squad and that team, the heartbeat in midfield, definitely. But around the place, he's, he's the, the practical joker. He's, he is the charismatic player in the, in the, in the midst of the, of the group. And I, I think given how young a lot of those Chelsea players are, that probably is quite significant. He's, he's probably weirdly played a part in, in the continued development of some of the people he will come up against on Sunday at Wembley and the, the Mason Mounts. And that, if Reese James ever gets onto the pitch, I mean, it's it's he has done remarkably well on the quiet almost, and and the last month or so of his footballing career have has been glittering, Champions League final and and the coolness of that penalty the other night, you know, mm. bedlam all around, and he still does his little hop, skip and jump as he comes up and converts that penalty. You just wonder, you just wonder whether he might produce that same. Hop, skip, and jump as he goes and collects the Ballon d'Or in the next year. Mm. I suppose it's time now just to get down to brass tacks. Simple question for for both of you, please. Who wins on Sunday and why? Jordan. Oh man, the why is the harder than than, than the actual who. I, so I tipped Italy before the tournament. And I have no issue in going against England if that's what I genuinely thought was going to happen. I'm going to go with England just. I've seen a, a, a more impressive England side at this tournament than I thought I would. I, I was I thought England would get to the semis and that would be that would be about it for them. I'm tipping England. Why? Oh, man. Um, it just feels that everything is going in their favour. They've broken records, winning their first, you know, group game, first time winning 4-0, one goal conceded, the home advantage, the fan advantage, no injuries, no suspensions, you know, the Southgate Deltas, some of whom have turned, have turned, changed their mind. It just feels like it's all going so well for England. And, and maybe that's emotion. Maybe I've taken my my, my analytical and pragmatic hat off. But I, I think my, my why is because it just feels like it's England's time. So um, I, I can't give any kind of more comprehensive, intelligent rationale beyond that. Apologies. But I'm going to go with England just because just. Sounded intelligent to me, mate. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dom. 
Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to apologize for being emotional on it. England will win on Sunday. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Moment. It's I was in Bloemfontein when we were humiliated by Germany. I was I was in Manaus when when we lost in the opening group game in 2014. I was in Nice when they were humiliated by Iceland. I was in the Lezhniki in 2018 when they were beaten by the better team. They were overwhelmed. And I, and I don't see those issues occurring with this England team. There's too much belief. There's too much conviction. And bottom line, there's too much quality. They've got a depth there that they've they've not had in generations. They've got a manager that, that knows how to manage and, and will get the best out of his players. And I don't, it, it won't be easy. It'll be an excruciating afternoon in so many ways. And the Italians are a wonderful, wonderful team. But England will win. Um, just briefly to add to that, I, I think Dom's given me a good answer there now. So I'm going to kind of piggyback off his one. <laughs> I think that I, I think that England have, uh, uh, I don't think there's a, there's a capitulation on the cards. I think that if England go one, even two goals down, I don't think that's it. That there's something about this team that makes me think uh, there, there's a belief there. And also, again, to one of Dom's earlier answers, I have faith in Southgate being able to tactically find the answer. So again, if England were to go one or down or were to be overwhelmed, I have faith that Southgate in game now has definitely improved. I think one of the big failures, his biggest failure in Russia was his in-game management. I have trust that if England are under the cosh, Southgate will find a way to tweak and Steve, Steve Holland to find a way to, to get England back into the game and get it done. It just feels like it's England's time to, to win. There you go. Yeah, I suppose we should use the D word, shouldn't we? Destiny. You know, my <laughs> scars go back to Mexico City in 86 to Italia 90. And you know, as Dom said, it has been a catalogue of almost predictable disappointment. We've said all along that this team and this squad is different, and it is different. I think, actually, the real signature achievement and Jordan hinted at it earlier, will actually come at next year's World Cup. But yeah, I expect them to give everyone, you know, you know don't, whatever you do, wear a heart monitor on Sunday because <laughs> it will explode. I think they'll win and I hope they win. And I, I, I feel no shame in saying that I hope they win because they're such a likeable, significantly empathetic squad of, just a group of people, young people. And I think that's really important, the example they're setting. On that basis, I just want to make a, a heartfelt plea to the England fans who are going to be lucky enough to be at Wembley on Sunday. Please don't boo the national anthem, the Italian national anthem. It's beautiful and it should be respected. Don't get too high if England win or too low if they lose. It's what Gareth would want. In the meantime, thanks to Jordan and Dom for their insight and their faith. And to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Enjoy the final. <laughs> <laughs>